I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 162. Today in the show, we've got a special episode recorded in front of a live, in-person audience, and we're talking about how to plan and execute DIY deer hunting trips with my friend and super successful deer hunter, Andy May. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we have a very, very special episode for you. Today's episode was actually recorded last week in front of a live studio audience down in New Orleans, Louisiana for the Quality Deer Management Association National Convention. And man, it was uh, it was a super, super cool event. Myself, my Nine Finger co-host, and our special guest all flew down to the Big Easy. And at 9.45 a.m. last Friday, we got up in front of a crowd of, I guess, maybe a couple hundred people. And we threw on our headsets We attempted to act semi-professional, even though I was wearing flip-flops, and we talked about planning and executing a do-it-yourself whitetail hunting trip. And then when we wrapped that up, we answered some audience questions and then spent the rest of the day checking out the Sportsman's Expo, talking to other deer hunters, eating some seafood, and then later that evening, we actually got to go out with a bunch of Wired Hunt listeners at our Wired Hunt meetup, have some cold beverages, catch up, talk about uh, all sorts of good stuff. So overall, it was just an awesome time. And Dan, Dan is not on here for our little intro, but in a future episode, the two of us will talk more about this experience. Uh, But in short, I think we both had an absolute blast. And, you know, after doing the live recording, both of us were so kind of jacked up about it. We got us thinking about doing more of these kinds of live events. So keep your ears tuned for more info on stuff like this in the future, I think there may be some cool things in store. But with that said, for you guys listening today, for this episode, we brought on a guest I've wanted to have on the show for a very, very long time. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. And I give a, a longer intro in the uh, actual in-studio recording or the in, I don't know, in front of an audience recording. But very briefly, if you followed the Wired Hunt website for any amount of time, you've probably seen some of the articles that this guest has written. Or you might have seen the DIY deer profile, or that's, uh, I guess it's the DIY 
deer hunter profile series he's been putting together for us. But this guy is just a machine. And I'm talking about my friend and DIY big buck killer, Andy May. So, uh, you know, if, if you're not familiar, you are in for a treat on this one as Andy, Dan, and I discuss all sorts of different topics related to going on these kinds of trips, planning on them, and pulling off a successful hunt. And I think, honestly, a lot of the stuff we talk about will actually be applicable to, you know, anyone out there hunting a kind of DIY situation, especially as Andy talks about a lot of different tactics related to scouting and, you know, how is hunting kind of plans and processes change throughout a trip or even a season. So whether or not you're going to go on a trip, I think you're going to find things you can apply to your own hunts. And I know you're going to enjoy this. So finally, before we get to that recording, I do want to give a quick shout out to the Quality Deer Management Association for a minute here because uh, we just had such a great time. And I've been a member of the QDMA for coming up on, I think, a decade now. And I, I really think without a doubt, I can tell you that there's no better deer hunting conservation organization, resource, or community that's better to be a part of than the Quality Deer Management Association. And, you know, whether you own or lease land and manage it or just hunt private land or public, the QDMA is, is, is for you. I think that they are working really hard to make sure that all deer hunters, all deer hunters feel welcome and that all deer hunters find the QDMA beneficial. I mean, just off the top, if for no other reason, their magazine is just a, a top-notch resource as far as educating you on deer biology and habitat needs and how to age deer and how to manage deer and all that good stuff. But then there's also lots of great hunting stories and hunting strategy pieces and their website and seminars and online courses and in-person events. They're just they're just so many tremendous resources that uh, you have access to through this group. So... This past week, I was just reminded of that, I guess, how what a special organization that is. Um, the people that are part of it are awesome. Um, so I'm just I'm just very appreciative of the fact that this organization is out there and that they invite us down to record our podcast at their convention. And what is also really cool is that the QDMA is offering a special opportunity for Wired Hunt listeners if you'd like to become a member of the Quality Deer Management Association, which I would highly, highly, highly recommend you do so. If you go to their website at qdma.com and hit the join button, you can use the promo code DEERCON. That's D-E-E-R-C-O-N, DEERCON, through the end of 2017 to get 5 bucks off your membership cost, and you'll get a QDMA hat, a grunt tube, a decal, and the QDMA Aging and Scoring Bucks DVD, which is which is an awesome resource for learning how to age deer or you know estimate their rack score. And then of course that membership gets you access to all the events I mentioned and their magazine too. So it's a heck of a deal. So again, you can head over to QDMA.com after this podcast, click the join button, and use the promo code DEERCON to get five bucks off your membership and all those other great items. I really think you will all benefit as members. I hope you'll join me as a member and now Without much further ado, we're going to take a break for a word from our partners at Sika Gear, and then we'll toss it over to our live recording down in New Orleans at the QDMA National Convention. Enjoy. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Sitka Ambassador Chad Stearns, who tells us about a memorable whitetail hunt in Michigan where he wasn't even behind the trigger. Okay, last fall, um, I was hunting a buck that we had deemed the name Dozer, a three-year-old buck in central Michigan. And I I had been after him for a couple years, Uh, just a unique rack. And it was interesting. My son was the one who actually uh, gave him his nickname. So 
I'd had a couple long distance encounter during archery season, been trying to hunt some primary scrape areas and could never seem to connect. And one evening late in our, our Michigan rifle season here, my son was with me running the video camera and we had kind of changed tactics, started hunting some food sources, hoping the, uh, the deer would come out. And he appeared at about 250 yards following a doe out into a, uh, picked cornfield. So, you know, between he and I trying to coordinate our efforts and, and get him on video and, and finally got an open shot, we were able to take this deer and it was special to me because, uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to guide my son and a lot of my time recently has been taking him. So to share that moment, a buck we'd been after had countless trail camera pictures, uh, was really kind of special to share that with him. I think he was more excited than I was. So, you know, anytime you can take kids out and introduce them to the outdoors and have some success, that's just ultra special to me. So that one stands out to me as a sick moment. On Chad's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's fanatic system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, and this is going to be very different than what you guys have heard so far today, what you saw maybe yesterday. Um, so before we go any further, before I introduce these guys or talk about much that you'll be interested in, I want to make sure that everybody knows what a podcast is, why we've got these funny things on our heads, why we're sitting here instead of standing up and having a great presentation. If you're not familiar, basically a podcast is like radio for the internet. So instead of you know listening on your AM, FM radio, you're going to be able to get our radio show on your phone, your tablet, your computer. And because we're not you know, within the constraints of a network, we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. And that just so happens to be deer. So what we do on the Wired Hunt podcast is every week, myself and my co-host right here, we talk to different deer hunting experts, deer-related experts about what we love, deer hunting. We spend hours dissecting deciphering and digging into exactly how they do what they do and then how we can apply that to our own hunts. So with the Wired Hunt podcast, we've been doing that for almost four years now and um, have been able to talk to some really, really interesting people, including many people you'll see here this weekend or that you already have seen. Um, and somehow we've suckered tens of thousands <laughs> of people to listen to it. So that's kind of cool. So that being said, what we're going to be doing today is just that. We're going to record a podcast. We're going to sit here. We're just going to have a conversation, the three of us. Um, it's going to be loose. It's going to be casual. It's going to be fun. And we're going to talk about something very different than I think what you'll usually hear about at a quality deer management convention. And that's going to be planning and executing an out-of-state hunt. So not on land you own, not uh, on, on a great big lease. We're talking about how can you go out and have an adventure on your own, on land maybe you've never seen before, uh, maybe on public land, maybe on private land. And that's something I've been fortunate to have some sex success with, Andy, as well. So before we get to that, though, who are these other two gentlemen? To my left is my co-host, like Matt said, Dan Johnson. He is an avid Iowa bow hunter. He is the co-host of the Wired Hunt podcast. He also hosts his own show, The Nine Finger Chronicles. He has only nine fingers. <laughs> and he's also uh, the father of two, soon to be three, and it wouldn't be a Wired Hunt podcast if we didn't hear something about the tyrant. So how are the kids? <laughs> uh, my wife is pregnant right now. She's at home with two literally maniacs. Yeah. So I think she wanted to come and me stay at home, but she doesn't know much about deer hunting. No. 
Well, I'm glad you were able to make yeah. it. It's funny, you know, we record this podcast at home. So I'm at my home office. He's in his house. So usually when we are doing this, I'm in my pajamas, and he's at his house with his wife or his kids smashing <laughs> on the door wanting to be in here. So this is very different. To my right, though, is uh, our special guest with us here today. He's a guy who I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long, long, long time, and he's refused to do so. <laughs> so somehow I convinced him to the first time to do it, to do it in front of people. Uh, his name's Andy May, and he is a hunter from Michigan, someone I've looked up to for a very long time. Um, I think he is the single best DIY bow hunter I know personally. He's an absolute machine. He doesn't like to talk about it. He's very humble, but he's been doing these types of out-of-state trips for more than 15 years. He's killed more than 24, 25, 26 mature bucks on these trips. Every year, he is going to three or four or five different states, and he's killing three or four or five mature bucks. It's very impressive. I also hate him for it because, <laughs> you know, every, every season it seems like I'll be sitting in the tree stands, October, November, and just when I'm getting really down, things haven't been going well, that's the point where I get this buzz on my phone. And I'm sitting there hating my life because things just have gone wrong and wrong and wrong. And then there's this text from Andy, got another one. So, so he's kicking you while you're down, basically. Yeah. So thank you for returning the favor finally and helping us out with something. Yeah, no problem. It's I'm happy uh, to be here. Yeah. Andy has a lot to share. So I'm excited he can be here to have this conversation with us. And like I said, we're talking about something that's outside of what I think the norm is uh, for this organization. In many cases, I've been a QDMA member for almost a decade now. And I've been really lucky to be able to have some properties that I have exclusive access to where I can do some management on a small scale, where I can do some habitat improvements, where I can get to know a local deer herd and do some things along those lines. And I love that. It's a lot of fun. And I think it's amazing that the stuff that we learn here at this convention, a lot of people, it is tremendous. Yep. But I also think that I'd be missing out if that was the only thing I did. I think there's been something kind of profound that I've been able to learn from these different types of trips, going outside of the usual, expanding my borders, comfort horizons, zone. getting out of that comfort zone. And I think that, A, it's an incredible adventure to go somewhere new, to try something new, to, to be put into a tremendous challenge and figure it out, that process. But it also actually quantifiably, I think, has made me a better deer hunter. Right. And I can take that and bring it back to my home properties. I can bring it back to my spots that I manage and have food plots and, and, and focus on specific deer. Right. Um, so I think there's value in that. And that's, that's why I thought it'd be important to have this conversation here because I think there's a lot of people here within the Quality Deer Management Association who have tremendous amount of deer hunting experience, experience deer hunting management experience, but maybe haven't tried something like this. Maybe they haven't gone and tried to hunt public land in a different state. Maybe they haven't drive 1,500 miles and slept at the back of their pickup truck right. trying to learn new, and learn new property. That's not for everybody. Right. But it is for some people, and that's kind of what we want to talk about. And Andy, you're a guy who has almost more experience with this than anyone I know. So I'm just kind of curious. I mean, that's my thoughts on, on why I love doing these trips, why I went to Montana last year, and like I said, slept in the back of my pickup for a week. Um, why do you do it? Um, it kind of started for me uh, out of necessity. Like, I, I'm from Michigan. Um, started kind of later in life. Uh, with bow hunting and within a few years I, I started having some regular success in Michigan you're allowed two buck tags um, and over time I was starting to get consistently uh, I was I was able to consistently fill those tags in Michigan so it just kind of made sense that you know I need to start looking elsewhere to 
kind of expand that season. You know, I was completely eaten up with it as I am now. And um, so naturally, I just started kind of looking into some options out of state. And around that time, I kind of drug my feet on it. And I was talking to Dan about that. Um, I really kind of mad at myself that I didn't jump into it sooner. I was kind of maybe a little overwhelmed or, um, you know, just a little worried about, you know, going into a new familiar area with nowhere to go. But I had some uh, acquaintances that at that time had been going to Iowa, and that was kind of that was kind of when Iowa was really getting a lot of recognition. And they were going out there on these DIY trips, and they were. I just kept hearing stories of them coming back, and it was like, man, it's going to blow your mind. And you know, we we saw, you know, we saw ten mature bucks in three days, and and you know, I hadn't seen like ten mature bucks in my whole career, so. You know, it, it, it was it kind of sparked that fire to kind of to try something new. So that was my that was the first step as I, I put in for a, a point for Iowa, started doing that. And it really became something that um, it's kind of evolved from that 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 first year where I did that first hunt. It's evolved into something now where I mean, that's what I look forward to. I hunt in Michigan. I hunt hard in Michigan. I, I, I like hunting Michigan, but it's tough and it's it's different. Um, I get kind of used to, you know, the properties that I hunt there and, and I get real, uh, you kind of figure them out, you know, and, and, and you kind of know what the, the, know the deer that are there, you know what they're going to do, you know, the spots that can produce. So, you know, when I go out of state, it's, it's kind of like, for me, it's like an adventure. It's a, how, how can I tackle this ground here? How can I figure out this ground? How can I, you know, how can I get an arrow into some of the, the better deer in this area? Mm -hmm. And I found, like, for me personally, that's, that's what hunting is for me, what I get the most out of it and what I enjoy the most about it. That stimulation, it keeps me sharp. Um, I, love, I love constantly trying to think of, of tactics and, and figuring out ground and, and terrain funnels and all that and just trying to, just trying to uh, I guess, expand my horizons. Yeah. And then, you know, it started off with one state, and then I, throw, I started throwing in a second state. And then, you know, you kind of learn that area, and then, and then I started – working into my schedule of third and fourth state. So what's crazy about your schedule though is he works at a school and he doesn't get vacation time. Yeah. So he hunts three days at a time, yep. four days at a time, and somehow is able to, to get that done. It's kind of remarkable. But to your point, it's, it's like that chess match. And yep. I think I love figuring out a single property like that I hunt a lot. That's mm -hmm. fun. But then, like you said, sometimes you figure it out mm -hmm. and you know, all right, well, if I'm in that funnel on November 4th, it's going to happen. Right. Or I've, I've put in these food plots. I've, I've put a terrific plan together. You start to figure that out. For me, one of the things I absolutely love the most about hunting mature bucks is that chess match. Yeah. It's constantly trying to figure. I want to put myself in that situation where the pieces are all over. And I'm like, how do I put this together? Right. Like that is the ultimate challenge for me that I love. Mm -hmm. And so these, when you're putting yourself in these new situations, you're forced into the beginning of that puzzle every single time. And I think that's, it's just an absolute blast. Right, right. <laughs> and I mean, you've done some of this too. Like, and I know not only is that challenge fun, but I know like just for you, the adventure of going somewhere new in that, like yeah. the sand hills of Nebraska you went to a few years ago. Yep. Went out to the sand hills and uh, I'm a tree stand hunter and I went to Arthur County, Nebraska has the only water in that entire county is either in cattle tanks or maybe pools when it rains. That's uh, if you're not familiar with the sand hills, it all soaks down into the into the water. It's the lowest at one point was the lowest populated uh, county in the entire United States, 
and there's way more cattle than there is people and there's no trees. So I'm a tree stand hunter in Iowa, hunt, you know, pinch points, funnels, whatnot. So going out there, I pulled up to this property and I had an awakening and it was just, and we get back to this experience, this experience where it makes you have to use your brain again, because once you get into a property, for example, the property that I hunt in Iowa, it's like my seventh year on this property. And I'm getting to the point now where I'm, I'm still learning something new every year, but it's, I'm, in, I'm putting my tree stands in close to the same locations. Right. I know, fine-tuning. yep, fine tuning, knowing where those funnels are going to be, knowing where those pinch points are, are going to be. And I've done that over, let's say a seven year period. Now I'm going out to someplace new and I have to do that in a four day period. Yeah. So, and, it's and a whole it just, ball of wax. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, okay. At least I know that the two of you are convinced of the importance of trying to trip like this. <laughs> if we're going to do a hunt like this, right. We'll start, Andy, if you, when you're starting, let's say this year you decide, Hey, I want to hunt a new state. I'm going somewhere new. I haven't been before. And you're starting that decision-making process. Okay. How do you pick a state or an area? Like, where do you start that? Uh, well, for me, I kind of looked at my situation. Um, like Mark said, I work at a school. I don't get vacation time, but I do. I get three personal days a year. And our vacations are our spring break, our Christmas break, that sort of thing. So um, I'm pretty much limited to weekends. And then, you know, sometimes I come down with a cough and I call in Calling sick on in Monday. sick. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll take a personal day. So, you know, three to four day trips. Obviously, I'm not going to go to Wyoming on a, a three to four day trip. So I, I, I'm in southern Michigan. I'm very close to the Ohio border. I'm very close to the Indiana border, so I'm, I'm somewhat lucky that I have those states right there. Those are kind of, you know, kind of no-brainers for me that I can get to. In fact, there's some properties that I can get to in Ohio um, on, on, a, on, a week, on a weeknight after work. I can buzz on down, and if I got the right conditions on, a, you know, an October evening, I'll, I'll do that. So um, I, kind of, I try to pick those, you know, two or three states that are close by, and I try to, you know, learn those really well. Um, I don't necessarily look for the best areas. Um, you know, you, a lot of guys will look at the stats and stuff, you know, the best zone in Iowa, and this is where all the Boone and Crockett bucks are taken. And I actually go a different route. You know, I, I, I kind of ignore that. I like to go that's to the places that are a little unknown or the places that aren't known for big bucks and just figuring them out. I don't need a, me personally, I don't need a big 160 inch buck to make me happy. Um, I'm, I'm perfectly happy, uh, you know, chasing good representative bucks for the area and, and there's, there's hunting pressure all, you know, everywhere, but you know, kind of go to those areas that are a little less popular, a little yeah. less, uh, you know, kind of more overlooked, not as publicized. You might find yourself, you know, maybe not hunting quite a big, as big a bucks, but you might have a little less pressure and you can really kind of, there's some areas that I've, I've been hunting for years and years and years, and it took a lot of, you know, trial and error, but I haven't really I'm really zoned in on a few locations, and now I know that these properties, you know, when the timing is right um, through experience, through trail cameras, that sort of thing, now I know if I go down at this time period with these conditions, you know, I've, I've routinely now been able to have success. So then yeah. over years and years of experience, I've just been able to kind of map that out and time that out over several different states. And I started looking into, you know, started doing Kentucky to try to get something early and now I'm looking into some August seasons, which aren't really, you know, whitetail related, but, you know, I'm going to do my first antelope hunt, mm -hmm. you know, before school starts. So I start trying to, to find those. And then I always kind of bank on, you know, Iowa when I draw that tag, that kind of takes precedence. And Illinois, yeah. I've hunted Illinois a bunch. So I, th I think, 
you know, jumping in real quick, I think one of the things I look for, to your point you mentioned earlier, you know, Iowa gets a lot of press, obviously, great state, you're a lucky man. Um, but some of these big-name states that are always on TV and everything, they have a lot more non-resident pressure, more people trying to go in there, right. or they have a lot of outfitters. So it's harder for someone to come in and try to get free access. Um, so I've tended to do the same thing, trying to hunt some of these states that aren't quite at that upper echelon, right. but still dramatically different than my home turf in Michigan. Or even within, like, Iowa, uh, the southern units of Iowa, famed for their big bucks and for the opportunities down there. But that's also where all the outfitters are. That's also where a lot, a lot of pressure is. So I've tried to find different units within that state that aren't nearly as popular, but are still incredible. So I can hunt there a lot more often. I can go and I can get access and hunt places for free, which a lot of people don't think is possible. But there's, if you go to these places where there's not hundreds of outfitters, dozens of outfitters, you can still find free permission. You can find public land with good hunting. And I think, you know, we've demonstrated that in our own experiences, that's absolutely possible. It just takes some work. Um, it's different, yeah. but it's absolutely possible. I think we can elaborate a little bit on that too, the, the gaining access, yeah. right? And one thing I am really good at is talking, schmoozing, <laughs> schmoozing and schmoozing. talking to landowners and getting my foot into the door and, you know, in a way that they can learn who I am. Mm-hmm. They can, uh, you know, cause even though Iowa is a big buck state, there's still and and there's still high pressured public land in Iowa, believe it or not. So I don't own property, I don't lease property, so I knock on doors. And I talk with these landowners. I ask them, you know, first off, I'm only a bow hunter. I don't I don't take advantage of the gun season. So I tell them that straight off the bat. I ask them if I could shed hunt. I ask them if I can uh, maybe turkey hunt yep. or, you know, I think that's Ga- such a great little hack. Right, or, or gaining access for mushrooms, which is the hardest of everything. <laughs> but, you know, getting your foot in the door, proving to, your, to them that you're a good person, yeah. you're not going to go drive on their wet field, destroy their property. Yep. And then at that point, year two, you know, year one, you don't get permission. Year two, you do. Yeah. Year three, you do. Establish that relationship, that exactly. trust. That is such a great way to start getting access to these places outside of your normal yeah. area. Um, I think that you goes, probably, it goes a long way. Yeah. Like just, just, you know, being personal with them. Um, I've, we've had good luck just getting permission. You know, it's, it's definitely gotten a lot harder, but, um, you know, especially kind of the older population, like, you know, people are rude now and, uh, you know, don't really take the time they want. They want the land to hunt and, yeah. you know, they'll ask if they say no, then, you know, see you later. Or, you know, they might just offer a, a you know, a, a sum of money or something, but, um, you know, what I found is that, you know, if, if you're very polite and, um, you know, you might get told no, but you just take the time to, to kind of to be personal with them. We, I've gotten uh, permission on an Iowa farm for a one day of chopping wood for their wood burner. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I got permission on an incredible um, 300 acre piece in Iowa. Um, this there is this older gentleman and, you know, he his his family had his his wife had died. His kids were out of state, very lonely. He lived in this old rundown house. And a buddy and I went up there and we knocked on his door. And, you know, he he didn't say yes right away. But he was very talkative. You could tell he just wanted company. He right. wanted the company. So we sat there and we talked with him. And he's, talked, he's just talking about a fence out back that was uh, broken down that he, you know, couldn't get back to to repair it. So my buddy Mike and I, we helped him fix that up. Um, and then, you know, after that, he invited us in his home and he's telling us, you know, his life story. And 
it was kind of an odd situation. Yeah. But, you know, he was showing pictures of his family and stuff, and you could just tell he just really wanted that, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and, then, and then after that, he invited us out for burgers in town. So we, <laughs> we went and got some burgers. And we noticed that he, you know, he was a, an avid Sprite drinker. You know? <laughs> so he, long story short, he ended up giving us permission. Um, you bribed him yeah, with yeah. Sprite? With well, Sprite. You know, at the end, at the end <laughs> you know, we did, uh, we, we threw him a little bit of money, um, not much. And we, we brought him a bunch of Sprite. And, and you know, he was just, uh, just really happy. Yeah. Um, he was he welcomed us onto his property, excited for us to have there. And he had actually turned down several outfitters that had offered him money. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it, there is still uh, opportunities out there to get permission yep. if you're persistent about it. I, I actually go into those situations with a very long list of people that I want to ask permission, but also with the public lands that, you know, that I'm going to key on. And that's kind of where I, I focus my area. Yeah. So, so on the private land piece, really quickly, I want to run through kind of my process for how, and I think we all kind of use a similar process. Right. Um, basically what I'm looking at is if I pick a general area, let's say, all right, I want to hunt Southern Ohio and somewhere in this neck of the woods, because I've got a friend nearby that says it's good. Let's just hypothetically say Then I'm going to go. And there's a lot of online resources right now where you can go and you can see a plat map basically that shows all the property parcels, the property owners, the border information, right. and you can have that overlaid over an aerial, aerial map. So you can see what these properties look like from a cover standpoint, from a terrain standpoint. And then you can see, okay, which properties actually hold this cover I want or whatever right. it might be that looks like it could be, you know, positive for deer. Um, and then like you said, I'll put together a long list of these landowners and their addresses. And then for me, the way I like to do it is I, I need, I need to get rolling with it. I'm not like you, like I get, yeah. I get nervous before having to go on there and knock yeah. on a door. And I think a lot of people that's uncomfortable. That's a little yeah. intimidating. So for me, that first door knock is kind of brutal. Yeah. But if I have a list of 15 of them and I just tell myself today, I'm doing it. I'm yeah. going to knock on 15 doors a day. Yeah. I don't care how lousy you feel about it, Mark. I don't care that you've got pit stains. You're going <laughs> to knock on 15 doors and you're just going to do it. And so the first one I'm like, oh geez. And they, that's fine. And the second one's a little better. And the third one's a little better. And then it snowballs. And by like 12, 13, 14, it's a long day. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But it's a numbers game, I think, getting permission these days. And I think a lot of people get frustrated because they hear, okay, yeah, you can get free permission if yeah. you knock on some doors. And so they knock on a door and they get a no. And they're like, oh, this is horrible. This is horrible. If I had your face, I would get <laughs> a yes on every door <laughs> that I knocked at. Not if you had this go to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, for example, like in Iowa, several years ago, I had, no, I had nowhere to hunt but I wanted to try to get access. So I right. did this. I took a day. I had 14 addresses on a list and I took, you know, it was like 12 hours. I knocked on 14 doors and had all sorts of situations like that. I had lots of no's, but then I had lots of people who just wanted to chat and we started talking and then we kept talking and talking. By the end of it, two different farm owners said yes. Right. And I had a total of actually 1500 acres to hunt for free in Iowa. Yep. And it was, I don't think a lot of people think that's possible, but it is. Right. Um, so that's kind of my process from a private land access standpoint, getting that list, knocking on those doors. Another thing I always do, I don't know if this has worked for you, Andy, but whenever you're talking to someone, even if they say no, I always ask, do you happen to know anyone else I should chat with? Is there anyone else in the area would be worth, you know, catching up with? Yep. And so many times like, well, Joe around the corner might, he lets one guy in gun season. Yeah. Most of my leads have come from something like that. Gaining knowledge of the area. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And one more thing to touch on that before we move on is, is, keeping that relationship yes. absolutely so absolutely i have a uh, in iowa i have had permission on this one farm um for probably going on eight to ten years and i call them on the phone i send them a christmas uh card with uh usually like a walmart gift card because mm -hmm. that's where they do their shopping 
um, when we go down there, we, you know, we go into their home, we spend an hour or two talking to them yep. and seeing how they're doing and, uh, you know, kind of take care of them and, and, and show them how much you appreciate that and that you respect their property and, and yep. just really appreciate, you know, the kindness that you're given. And, and that goes a long way. There's been several other people on many, many parcels that have had permission with me that are gone, but you know, I, right. I rarely lose one unless like something gets leased out from yeah. me or something like that. Right. But you know, you take the time, you know, several times a year to stop in and talk to them, well, bring them some fresh walleye, you know, caught out of Lake Erie, you know, stuff like that. Just people don't do that anymore. Yeah. Right. And I think to that point, an important thing to note when it comes to trying a trip like this, an out of state hunt, whether it's hundred miles from home or 1200 miles from home, there's something to be said for the prep work in that. Let's say you've got seven vacation days for the year you're going right. to work with. You could either take all seven of those days for the actual hunt, or you could take one of those and go out in February or March or June right. and do a day like this where you try to get access or where you scout the land on foot. And I think you're going to be much better set up if you take that, if you find a way to make the trip beforehand and, and get access or look at public land or whatever it might be um, versus trying to show up on day one. Because you know, it's very difficult to get permission by phone or anything like that. Right. It's very difficult to really figure out a property um, without seeing it. Now you can do it with, with maps these days. Um, but that's what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about let's, let's say we, we found an area. We went down in, in February, knocked on a lot of doors, got permission, or there's a piece of public land that looked good on the map. Um, I'm curious next how you go through this, how you start that scouting process. Um, I do a lot of scouting, like I said, online, looking at maps, figuring things out from a high level. Um, and then you go from there, you go, you kind of ground truth it. But what, what's your process, Andy? Um, you know, I'm definitely a map freak. Um, I have, you know, uh, binders of each state with the properties that I hunt, the properties that I plan on hunting and the prep, like backup properties, you know, public you know, private, that sort of thing. And I have, you know, the aerials and then I have, um, the, uh, the topo maps and all that stuff. And I, I, I do, I really zone in on that. But for me personally, I, I can find out the obvious stuff, like the stuff that probably everyone in this room can find, which is what your, your typical funnels. Um, you know, you, some, it's very easy to, to see like river crossings. Um, now with like Google maps and stuff, you can zone in, you can actually find deer trails, yeah. um, you know, and see where there's a lot of intersecting trails. Um, you know, bedding areas, you know, depending on the type of habitat, very easy to see and predict. Um, so what I, I find more for me personally, I get, I get more, um, detail with boots on the ground. So I, I always try to, and it helps because these States aren't terribly far from me. Montana would be hard to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like to get out there uh, in the spring, early spring, you know, after the snow melt before green up especially if I'm planning like a rut, a pre-rut, rut trip, late October, you know, early November, maybe that second week of November, that's when that sign is really visible. You know, you can see the rubs, you can see the scrapes, you can see the trails. Everything is, you know, was just made a few months ago. You can really dial in and see where kind of everything comes together and, and really pick out those high percentage spots. So for me, boots on the ground is, is, is a kind of a necessity. And to be honest with you, for me, that's like just part of the enjoyment of it. I like that as much. I, yeah. I like f trying to scout and figure out deer and going on these adventures and, and brand new areas where I don't even know what's there, success or not. I, I actually enjoy that 
maybe more than actually getting getting a buck on the yeah. ground. You know what I mean? I yeah. just I've, I've really come I've just become addicted to that constant stimulation of new. You know, put me in an unfamiliar area with the bow in my hand and the wind in my face, and it's like. Phew. Yeah, so you know. I'm always impressed. Like of all the people I know, I, I hear that oh Andy's going to a new spot, and it's like within three days or four days, bam, he's got one down. And yeah. like you're, you seem very adept at finding those high odds locations very quickly and being able to key in on them at the right times. Um, and you kind of alluded to a few of the specific things, but can you give us like a specific example of a time when you showed up on a property, you did your scouting, and you said okay, X and Y are the right spots for my rut trip or whatever, and how that worked out. Okay. So like if I was going on a rut trip, you know, I, again, I picked the, you know, on the map, I kind of zone in on some obvious spots, but by getting boots on the ground and I think just, um, you know, well by boots on the ground, I can really zone in on an area. We talk a little bit about the spot within the spot. Like yeah. guys can pick out funnels, um, you know, and they're, they're great spots they produce. Um, and what I found is a lot of times there's, there's, there's funnels or, or downwind of uh, like a doe bedding area during the rut can be dynamite, but there'll be an actual like a tree or a very small location that is the spot within the spot. When I say that, like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a spot in, uh, there's a, three of them that come jump right into my head, but one in Iowa. Um, when we went in the spring and we scouted, um, we found this, um, th there's this ridge system that kind of, there's, you know, a ridge point that comes down this way a ridge point that comes down this way and a ridge point that comes down this way so we got a lot of things converging typically you don't want to hunt low in a ridge type country because the wind swirls well this situation was different and, it, and I found it out through you know hunting it and a lot of trial and error but the bottom was so wide that I could with a certain direction get some pretty steady wind now mm -hmm. if it was coming over the ridge you get all kinds of you know every deer that comes down in that area will smell you but out of this one direction because of the wide bottom it would blow me right up this way. Now it would cut me off this way, which deer would come from sometimes. But again, I'm, I'm in the, in the rut in Iowa, you know, deer coming from a lot of different directions. Um, so, but this, this spot in scouting that really stood out, there was a lot of big rubs. So we knew, so there were some big deer in the area and there was a very big giant primary scrape right there surrounded by perimeter cover Our perimeter cover, uh, just kind of your, your textbook, um, like early November, late October, big big scrape and perimeter cover. It's like, man, this is, this is spot I'm going to kill in here. So, you know, we hunted that spot and we, we killed deer there. Like, you know, we'd see, we'd see some bucks come down the ridge and, and about half of them, half of the deer we saw came by the spot. But then what I noticed over experience, and it took me, it took me some, uh, some time to develop this. What I noticed is that 50% of the deer were coming through here, but Right over there, 50 yards away, 90% of the deer went by that. And there was no sign there that pointed that out. There was no rub or scrape or anything like that. It was the way the terrain worked. And, you know, you go in there in the spring, because these bucks are cruising, there's no beat down trails, really. There's some faint stuff. Yep. But this is stuff that happens very briefly in the season, you know, during the, during the, the cruising phase and, um, of the rut. So you don't get that beat down sign. But what it was is that the terrain, the way the terrain worked, it, it funneled everything down that point, even though there was no specific sign there that sure. screamed out at you. So what we did is we moved a tree stand over there, and that, that you know that was the trip um, where I think you were in Ohio and I was in Iowa. This is exactly one of those scenarios. Yeah, I was frustrated in Ohio. Yeah, you were having a tough time and, and frustrated, and um, I sat for, first day in Iowa, um, sat in that spot 
we waited for the, the right timing. It was November 6th and 10.30 in the morning, a nice 12-point with split brows came down. And just like, just like every other buck cruising through that area, almost every other buck crossed through that spot. And you wouldn't know it if, unless you were really observant. You thought back um, about a lot of previous hunts and what you saw and what my hunting partners had saw and told me, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to, um, one thing that I've noticed that I'm, that I'm able to do is like that information kind of stays in here. Right. I'm able to pull it back pretty quickly. Good recall. Yeah. Good recall. And then, you know, when a friend sits there or, or anybody that hunts down that area, I'm, I'm constantly asking questions cause I want to learn sure. from them too. So, and what we found out is just that spot. It just kind of everything came together there and uh it, it's turned into one of those spots if you if you go there november 5th to november 10th and you sit in that spot with that wind you're you're gonna kill a good buck yeah. there's no i mean you're gonna get a crack at one i mean you might blow the shot but <laughs> there's a it's just one of those spots and now and now you know i found several of those right in different different areas i think it, something you mentioned though is really important uniquely on one of these types of trips because i think when you're hunting your own land and you hunt right. there often you can learn this stuff over a long period of time right. and start like you said like you're in the process on your iowa property you're fine-tuning you know that okay next year i'm going to shift it a little that way i saw this and that when you're on a trip like this when you have four days or seven days you go like you said you do some pre-game scouting if you can and then you start out and you have to make game time decisions very quickly. You have to be much more aggressive on a type right. of trip like that because you have a short time frame to get it done. So I think your example there, you've got a great spot. You're thinking this is terrific. And you though see that eh, a significant percentage is there. It's only maybe a 50 yard difference. And maybe if this was my own property that I was going to be hunting a lot, I'd be like, oh, I'll stick it out here a while longer, see how it goes next right. year, make a shift. When you're on a trip like this, you don't have that luxury. Right. You have to at least in my opinion, and from a lot of people I talk to have similar experiences like this, you need to get aggressive with making that decision now yep. and moving because you're on a short time frame. Everything needs to be accelerated on a trip like this. Right. So at least from real quick, at least when I'm starting a trip like this, you know, whether it be early season or the rut, I'll start, I'll scout if I can. Mm -hmm. In the Montana situation, I didn't get to do any physical scouting. I just looked at maps and did a drive-by. And then I went into it and said, okay, first hunt of that trip, observation i'm going right. to be somewhere i can see as far as i possibly can and try to learn something by way of that right um and then i'm going to iterate i know that i'm going to hang a stand the first night and if it's not exactly where i need to be i know that day two i need to shift and day three i need right. to shift and keep moving or i know some guys that do trips like this where day one they don't even hunt they just do a full day of scouting and they'll do stuff that a lot of people would think is crazy that manage land you know, if you let's say you know my 90 acre farm in michigan i hunt the most i keep like half of that like completely off limits i have a sanctuary i'm not going to go in there right. but if i only had four days to hunt this property all year and if i never went into more than 50 percent of the property with only four days available eh, i'm probably not going to do you're not going to be able to see those opportunities so right. what this guy eric peisler i'm thinking of right now he'll go in day one he'll walk it all yeah specifically during the rut so he knows he's going to bump some deer and that's going to make a lot of people cringe he's people right. oh geez don't go through the bedding areas but he does that knowing that yes I'm going to damage something within this area. But there's other people hunting it already. Maybe it's public land. But he's able to learn really important data that he can use over the next four days. Absolutely. And in a rut hunt situation where you've got a lot of deer coming in and out, you can, you can get away with that. So you need to know what you can get away with. Like I knew in my, my, my Montana trip, it was early September, and I knew that they would be very sensitive to pressure. So I was going to stay off on the edges. I was going to watch and then make very calculated moves every day. Right. But I knew if I blasted into the bedding area or something, it'd be game over. Right. So day one, I set up. I watched. Day two, went from a different angle, 
sort of fine-tuned where I had to be and on day three I knew okay based on what I learned on day one and two I gotta be just a little bit closer into the spot set up in there and 430 here he came filled the tag um, but I think a lot of people would be afraid to make those moves right and and that's what I mean even yeah, on home the, property that's, that's the important. biggest on these shorter hunts whether it's a spot and stock or a tree stand hunt I've always been a conservative type hunter set up those observation stands and try to wait them out or sit in a, a pinch point or a funnel and wait them out, right? Not necessarily an all-day sit because I hate sitting all day. You're old. I'm bad getting knees. old, bad knees. But, um, you know, time for, as from a day standpoint, all right, this buck hasn't been in here for two days. The third day he might come in or, you know, making sure my access route is right. But on, a, on a, those shorter hunts, it's going to be, let's say it's a four-day hunt. Day three, you haven't made a move. You're, you've just realized that, oh, crap, I need to get something done, or this was just another scouting mission. Yeah. So it forces you to be aggressive and develop different hunting skills. Absolutely. Yeah. And like we, like we said in the earlier, I think forcing yourself into these situations makes you a better hunter back home right. because you're constantly working on a new puzzle. Right. And you learn things throughout that. So – so what else for you when you're when you're figuring out these new properties when you're in there? You mentioned doing that pre preseason scouting, and you're you kind of launch and iterate. You're you're trying to spot. You're adjusting. Are there any other common setups or things that you're thinking about? Maybe maybe we haven't talked about trail cameras. How you might may or may not use those on these types of hunts. Is there anything else that as far as executing this hunt that is important to how you're you're having success? Um, I think the biggest the biggest thing is 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 getting out there and doing it and, and over time pick t- pick an area, um, you know make sure that there's some quality deer there that you're going to be happy pursuing and then and then really learn that area and and go go as often as you can scout as much as you can um, that some of those farms in in Iowa and Kentucky and and Illinois like I know them I, I've hunted them and I've I've killed big deer on them. Yeah, I still want to go scout them every year in the spring right. because there's that that one thing that might get me in just a little bit better spot or, or, or find another spot that's kind of like this. So, you know, when you start to learn those properties intimately, I think that's when you can really, you know, dial it in where you can get it done on a, on a shorter hunt. Now, like you, you brought up Eric Pysar and, mm-hmm. and being aggressive and stuff like, you know, I hunt very similar to him. And, you know, when we're on these trips, we're not hunting a specific buck. So, you know, if you own ground and you're, you know, you got, you know, you know, big Louie, that's 180 and you don't, you, you probably don't want to do that. Right. 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 But so, but, but like I said, I go there, um, with the attention, I'm very happy shooting a good representative buck, a nice Pope and young buck, you know, we've, we've killed much bigger, but you know, a good solid deer, you know, makes me happy. And, and, and that's what it's all about. You know, you just yeah. got to find what type of hunter you are and what, what, what kind of drives you and what stimulates you and makes you happy. Yeah. So you mentioned Kentucky, and last year, at the same time I was on that hunt I just mentioned in Montana, you were in Kentucky, and you got thrown into a situation where you had to hunt new areas and you had to figure it out. We kind of had sort of similar hunts in, in that you were able to figure it out and things came together. Can you describe that situation a little bit, how, you know, the challenge you had there and how you adjusted and were able to get some spots and make it happen? Yeah, I started out um, with on public land. Um, and I was literally, uh, this was a, a kind of different than most of the time. Most of the time I would, I would go and do some pre-scouting, because, but because it was early season um, and I didn't have time to, uh, at, you know, at home and everything, I didn't have time to really go out and do much like glassing and that kind of thing. So I just kind of went and I just was like, you know, I'm going to 
just do this. I went to a, I was planning on going to an area that I was somewhat familiar with, ended up in a, a different area because this one public piece that I had hunted in the past actually moved their opening day back, which was kind of weird. It mm -hmm. wasn't on the traditional Kentucky opening day. Yep. So I was forced into a new area um, and, you know, stand on my back and I was just kind of scouting and I was going off, you know, just prior knowledge, looking, you know, trying to get in deep where deer are a little unpressured, moving a little more freely, looking at sign that was right now sign because it is early season. Like the sign that I was seeing is, is right now. And by a little trial and error on day two, um, in the evening, um, I saw a very large buck. Um, I don't know how big he was, but a very large buck on public land. Um, and then I set up on him the next evening and he didn't show up. And then I kind of had, had a couple slow hunts in between. So I was kind of regrouping and I was driving down. I got out of there and I uh, was regrouping and I, I saw some deer crossing this like CRP type ground, um, kind of rolling hills, large CRP. And I could just see, and I could see one of them had a rack and it looked like they were going into this piece of timber kind of angled back towards this river bottom. So I was like, yeah, you know what? I had the Onyx maps. That's a great tool. Um, could immediately find the landowner's name, address. Oh, it's right here. So yeah. I just stopped, um, asked permission. Um, and he said that there's some guys that come down that, that, that hunt during the rut, but no one is there during not, right now. So he, he said he would work with me on like a kind of like a daily trespass fee, very affordable, very cheap. So I was like, you know what? Okay. Just figured I'll try it. So gave him a little bit of money. Um, Got the stand on my back, kind of headed back towards where I saw those deer going. And there was a secluded hay field that was freshly cut there, probably maybe a week of growth. And there, the deer were really hammering. I was, immediately saw, like, a lot of deer tracks. So I started kind of circling the field, seeing some doe and, and fawn tracks. Then I saw a couple buck tracks. Well, as I was getting around to this backside, then the, the tracks really started accumulating, and I saw some really good-sized tracks. So I, know there was, I knew there was a, an older buck hitting this field now knowing what I know about you know food sources and the way thermals work you know deer like to enter those types of fields in the low spot typically so there was a low spot across the field I started edging my way there and checked the wind the whole time found a spot where the wind was iffy um, but I thought I could make it work it was going to be kind of a risky deal mm -hmm. found a tree set up and um, that evening had some deer come out and the, the wind was kind of just teetering on like busting me or, or being just off. And that, that, that deer came out and he literally, he had the wind, he was smelling the field and I was 25 yards this way. And he was, I was just missing him. I mean, it's, it's what you want. Right. Um, I kind of, I, I got a little lucky with the stand location and, and, but he, he came out in that field right in that low spot and I arrowed him in a field and I'm not a field edge hunter typically. Um, but it's Kentucky. It was early season. No one had been out there. I didn't see a single boot track. I knew the pressure was low. Mm -hmm. So I had a good feeling I was going to see some deer. And I didn't want, I didn't know how, not being familiar with the property, I didn't know how far in they were bedded. So I didn't want to go in there too right. far. Didn't have, any, have anything trimmed. I didn't want to go in there hacking. So I sat where I had a little shot into the woods, a little shot to that low spot. And, and I think you were conservative in that because you didn't know you wanted to hang back a little bit and observe, but you were also willing to take a risk from the wind standpoint, which usually if I'm in a premier location, I'm, you know, I don't want to risk blowing deer out, but when you've got four days, you need to work with what you've got. And sometimes that's Hail Marys. Sometimes that's swinging for the fences. In this case, it worked out. I'm very, 
I think, you know, on these short trips or out-of-state trips, like being aggressive, you know, you, you got to be aggressive. And, you know, out of uh, the deer I've shot, you know, I was trying to work it out in my head, but it's something like 90% were killed on that first sit. So I like fresh sits and I like aggressive sits. I don't do a lot of observation sits on those out-of-state trips because, you know, I'm just – now if I was going to go early season, ideally I'd get there a few days early, try yep. to identify a deer to go after. But just – the way the thing worked last year, it was like I was going and I was hunting that next yeah. morning. So, so that's that's an important point. I think Dan, you can speak to this too. I mean, all three of us utilize this type of technique, and when you're hunting in this kind of way, new properties where you don't, you're not able to go in there and have a bunch of tree stands pre-hung. You're not able to have the property mapped out just the way you want it. So you need to, as you mentioned, go in with a stand on your back, run and gun, baby, run and gun, and make it happen. Yeah. Um, we all utilize that type of setup. I'm curious, maybe Dan, if you want to walk through first your your thoughts on how you manage that. How do you, what kind of basic equipment or how's your setup to be able to get in, hang a stand the day of and not spook every deer out there? Right. I am a, you know, just like you guys, uh, first time in, best time in type yep. of hunter. Uh, and then from there, if you go back to the same stand, you're going to see less deer and less deer and less deer. So from an equipment standpoint, something light, something that's going to get me uh, high enough to shoot, but not too high that, and it, a lot of it depends on the time of year. So if let's say it's early season and I do a run and gun on a buck, maybe I saw still on a summer pattern. Um, I need to get, I need, I'm not going to go as high as the, yeah, low. So I'm not trimming so many shooting lanes uh, because there's still leaves on the tree. As the season progresses and the leaves start falling off, off the tree, I'll, I'll go up a little bit and I'll make sure I'll ha have a pole saw with me right or a saw where i don't necessarily need to shoot i mean some there's some guys in here who sh cut shooting lanes as wide as this room i won't do that yeah uh, little pockets uh and focus on maybe one trail or two trails you know in that in that pinch point but a lightweight hang on stand with sticks and uh i'm a huge fan of the the lone wolf tree stand and, and the stick system that they have there's others out there that uh, can do similar things and, uh, you know, for me, first time in, best time in, I'm not looking for uh, a good area where I'm looking for the right tree. So my setup has to be able to fit, you know, sometimes those trees are crooked. Right. Sometimes those trees are not telephone poles, right? So I, I, I want to have equipment that's going to allow me to set up in the not ideal right. tree. I think that's a pretty consistent thing with a lot of people that do these kinds of trips is that they utilize that setup and they have the sticks and stand. Climbers yeah. can work, but you're a little bit more restrained, you're constrained limited. by trees. Yep. So having a hang on, a lightweight hang on stand you can throw on your back, having climbing sticks. Yep. And I think something we all do as well is we try to uh, silence those tree stands yep. in some way in your sticks. So put duct tape or hockey tape or some type of cloth to find where those contact points are so before we move on we need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at whitetail properties and today we've got a great segment on a topic really related to what we've been talking about here with marcus spencer newharth will take it from here and you obviously don't want to be spooking the does that are better right there that you're hoping are going to pull on that buck let's say so you need to be able to go in there with as best as possible chance to do it quietly stealthily and so i think 
preparing your equipment, having a process. I think practicing doing this kind of thing oh, is yeah. good. If you don't hunt this way often, like go out there in the summer with your sticks and stand <laughs> and practice setting up. Have a have a plan of how you're going to get all four of your sticks up there, how you're going to get them off your backpack, how you're going to pull up your tree right. stand because it is different than doing it in it's, June. Yeah, it's all about eliminating mistakes and, uh, you know, a little clank on your tree stand, that could be the end of it. You mm -hmm. know, it could Efficiency. Ruin, could ruin your hunt. Yeah. So. Um, like Mark said, you know, a, a light tree stand, um, sticks, some guys use a tree saddle. I use a tree saddle quite a bit. Um, and then silencing your equipment. There's a great company called stealth outdoors. Um, and they make these things called stealth strips and they're pre-cut strips that are, are they're kind of spongy and they're, they're pre-cut to fix, fit your sticks. Any stick you have, he makes several different sizes, your lone wolf tree stands. You know, I have all my gear. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing that's going to, if I drop something or it swings down and it's going to be a dull thud, it's not yeah. going to cost me a hunt. And I eliminate those mistakes. Right. Um, and then like Dan said, you know, a process of hanging your sticks, hanging your stand, being able to do it efficiently with very little movement, very little, um, chance of noise and efficiently quiet, very quiet. I practice that and I've, I've gotten real good at being able to get up in a, a tree stand. Once you find that tree. It should be, you should be on autopilot from there and you don't have to think all you have to do is go up the tree. Yeah. I think it's funny. Um, when you think about this kind of trip compared to like the, when you think of the amount of preparation and work that someone puts into a property, they hunt every year. Yeah. I mean, food plots and hinge cutting and clearing out access lanes and hanging 15 tree stands. That's a lot of work. Right. And maybe you might assume that when you're going on a DIY trip, well, these guys sound like they're running out there haphazard, throwing tree stands up the day of. It doesn't sound like the same amount of work, the same amount of preparation goes into it, but it's just different. It's different. You need to yeah. prepare your tree stand ahead of time um, in these types of ways. You need to do a lot of scouting, but in a different way. It's back home on your computer, um, or it's six months ahead of time on that one day you can drive out there, um, or it's thinking through a game plan, knowing, okay, I'm showing up on November 3rd, and I have a plan. I know that day one, I'm going to try here, and then I'm going to iterate, and I'm going to adjust, and I'm going to adjust. And you, and you go into it, I think, knowing these things, being prepared however you possibly can to, to know, number one, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be challenges. Things aren't going to go the way I want them to probably, but have a plan for what to do. I love the idea of the fact that you have backup properties. Yep. I think that's really smart. Go like If you're going to drive 10 hours to go to Nebraska and you only have one place to hunt and you show up there and have, have backup properties, yeah. there's been plenty of times where I've went out and, uh, you know, the property was getting logged or it was overrun with hunters. Yeah. And then, and then, then what do you do? You know, you're yeah. kind of like, whoa. So you have those backup properties and, uh, you know, you always have something to kind of plan B, probably yeah. plan for plan C too. Yeah. Cause things are constantly changing. You know, you, those, those landowners, uh, they don't always let you know when something gets leased out, you know, they're just. You know, they just live there and they're, right. they give you permission. So, which is great, yeah. but yeah. could change. Yeah, things can change. There, there's, there's so many little details and little aspects aspects of what we're talking about that like are important to understand. I wish we could get into all of them, but we kind of are on a pretty tight time frame here, so we have to wrap this up much, much sooner than I wish we had to. But I want to really quick try to do like some rapid fire things here. I think a big question a lot of people have when it comes to a trip like this is, is can I afford it? You know, can I afford to go and, and travel out of state and do all this kind of stuff? And I found that a lot of times you can, um, but it comes down to choices, just like anything else. I think, you know, you can choose to invest in hunting or you can choose to invest in a new bass boat or you can buy a new big screen TV or a bigger new truck. If trying like something like this is important to you and you'd like to do that, yeah. make some choices. But I do think it can be much more affordable than people realize. And I'll three really quick ways that I've managed to make this pretty affordable. And I've alluded to a number of them, but number one, 
hunt low cost states sometimes. So there's your states like Kansas or Iowa or Illinois that are five, 600 bucks to get a tag, to buy points over a couple of years. That that's a significant cost, but you can go to Ohio or Indiana or Kentucky for 150 bucks or 250 bucks um, and still have a great experience. Um, Lodging is a huge expense for a lot of people. A lot of people want to be in a hotel, be nice and comfortable. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're trying to pinch pennies, camping is a great option to do this. Um, And I've done that in a lot of trips and had a lot of fun with it. It's, It's not for everyone. Um, but I've never had a more enjoyable experience than waking up at 4.30 in the morning in the back of my pickup truck, and I opened up the back cab, and it was frosty outside, and there was <laughs> antelope in the field, and I had a little backpacking stove, hot coffee, and just like there was no one for miles. All I can hear is like these little crickets, and there's a river, and I can see snow-covered mountains, yeah. and I'm hunting whitetails today. Yeah. Like that is an awesome feeling, right? and I didn't pay a dime for it. I didn't pay for access. I was on public land. I didn't pay for lodging. It was, I mean, that's an opportunity available to us. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. And then finally, food. If you can plan your meals ahead of time and not go out to dinner every day, right. you can save a ton of money on that. So we, my wife and I, like, we'll cook a bunch of ma- meals, freeze them up, throw them in the cooler, and then I know just every night I come back and I can just heat them back up on the little stove. My uh, Nebraska trip was the cheapest mayonnaise I could find with white bread and ham loaf with that, those little cheese nuggets that are in it. Uh-huh. Oh, man, they're horrible. But, but they give they give me energy. That's good. All right. So so do you have any other cost savings or any other like uh, uh you know just if, if you find the right partner um Yeah. That's a good point. You know, splitting cost. Uh there's there's a, a state that I go to with three guys. Um you know, two of my best friends, great guys. Um we sacrifice maybe some big bucks and some better hunting for the sake of just going together. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've had some great luck. We, we, we kill deer, we kill good deer and, and it, it does, it makes the trip affordable that, that, you know, those the Illinois and Iowa takes can get pretty expensive, but that's one way. Um, and I think, I think you pretty much kind of touched on everything else. That's kind of what I do to cut costs as well. I'll throw in one more lesson learned and, and you've heard this story and some listeners of our podcast in the past have, but I'll just say if you are going and your significant other isn't going to be there with you, Make sure you have a communication plan in place. Right. I didn't do this on one of my trips. I didn't have a, a good sound schedule of when I'd be checking in with my wife. And I happened to get <laughs> caught up in the experience. I was having so much fun. I forgot to check in with her for a day or two. She called the cops, had people searching <laughs> searching for me. And I was like five hours away fly fishing because I had filled my tag. So have a plan in place because she didn't talk to me for a while after that. Right. So don't make that mistake. <laughs> And, um, and then I'll just say Brownie two, points. two other quick things. Um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this, the fact that there are these opportunities either for free from permission or public land. And there's a lot of things going on right now in the, in the country related to public land where there's some politicians that are tossing around this crazy idea of, of selling off our public lands. Yep. And if you want to try something like this someday, that's not going to bode well for you if we lose these places. So I just encourage everyone to try to, you know, Google public land transfer, something like that. Learn a little bit about what's going on right now with this whole deal. Right. And um, if you're interested in exploring these places as a hunter or hiking or backpacking or trying anything else, um, learn a little bit and stand up to try to make sure that doesn't happen. I think that'd be a good thing. And then finally, I'd just like to say, yeah, thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> I thought that was like the clapping me off stage. Like, Get out of here. <laughs> you're done. It's <laughs> enough, time to go. Enough of that. <laughs> and then I'd finally just say, um, try this. If you if it's something that intrigues you, if it's something that you've always thought, man, I'd always I'd love to try some of that maybe, right. but next year or someday I'll do it. Um, or gosh, it just seems like a lot of work. Or just yeah, I, I got my thing. Right. Um, 
I would just encourage you to take the leap, give it a shot once. It may not be the perfect trip that you see on TV that everyone has and you kill the giant buck and it's like, ooh, perfect. But I guarantee you, if you try something new like this, the experience itself will be will be well worth it. You'll have great memories. You'll learn a lot. And um, it's something to look back on and say, hey, absolutely. I did this. Yeah. yeah. Getting outside of that box. So that's those are my couple thoughts on it. I know that we're tight on time. If we still have time, we'd love to take some questions from the audience if, if anyone has them. Um, we can go from there. Absolutely. I'm a big round of applause for uh, Okay, so in a second here, we're going to get to some audience questions, but first, we need to break for a quick word from our partners at Whitetail Properties and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Now, in our Whitetail Properties segment, we're going to hear just a little bit about the unique challenges of targeting mature bucks in heavily hunted areas, something you know I can definitely relate to, and a lot of people that might want to go on a DIY trip like we're talking about, I imagine they might be able to relate to this. So that's pretty relevant to what we're discussing. And then from Whitetail Institute, we're going to hear just a little bit about a great forage blend for your fall food plots this year, something that could come in handy for those of you working on your own properties. So long story short, this is going to be some interesting stuff, and we will quickly get back to our audience question and answer as soon as we get done with this. And from here, I'll throw it over to Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tony Hansen, a land specialist out of Michigan. And Tony is going to be telling us about how hunting strategy changes in pressured states like Michigan. I'd say the biggest difference is that just the availability, the number of older deer is much, much lower. So you don't have, you know, a bunch of them to pick from. So you, you've got to be pretty careful with the ones that you do have to hunt. And, you know, for me, it, it's all about trying to manage the, the ground that I've got so that I do have that age structure because it's, it's probably not going to be there on the neighbors. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tony currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Hanson. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. This week with Whitetail Institute, we're talking to consultant John Cooner about their special blend of Imperial Whitetail Pure Attraction, which will have deer hammering your food plot all season. Pure Attraction is one of our annual forage products that's designed for planting in the fall. Uh, and I would not be uh, overstating it to say that it has brought us a lot of customers. It's dynamite stuff. Uh, there are two main parts to it, and the advertising guys say it's a one-two punch. But basically, you've got early fall, uh, and primarily that's going to be whitetail, uh, whitetail oats, uh, which is an oat variety that we were alerted to by some, uh, some researchers. Uh, that was so, they were doing a grain production trial, and it was so attractive to deer that they had to, had to pull it out of the trials. And we tested it and also found it uh, to be very cold tolerant. That's for early fall, moves into the later fall, and then uh, the other part of it is the Whitetail Institute brassicas, which come up very quickly, and the deer will start hitting them. Uh, they'll get even sweeter with the first frost of fall. So it's the one-two punch that takes you from fall all the way through the dead of winter. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely one of our, our big sellers. And one of the, the neat things, uh, other neat things besides it being extremely attractive to deer, is with the droughts we've been having in the fall, people have realized that uh, the whitetail oats, uh, oats plus will... Uh, will come up and provide a good nurse crop with perennials. And for that reason, we've had folks asking us, uh, can we take the oats and take Whitetail Institute brassicas and plant them together? 
And the neat thing about this is you don't have to. We've already done it for you, and we've our testing has shown that the ratios in that product are optimum to provide maximum traction. If you'd like more info on Whitetail Institute's forage products, check out whitetailinstitute.com, where they also carry some of the top supplements, attractants, and herbicides available. Okay, we're going to go over there or to Kyle. Right. So, so for those who couldn't hear, the question was how far ahead of time do you need to plan these trips, especially if you're going to go somewhere where you need to draw a tag. I think that's a great point. We, we didn't really touch on that. Um, but there are a number of states that require you know, several points to enter a lottery system. Yep. I would definitely, like, January, be, like, thinking about this. Like, try to read the regulations. Some of these states can be a little bit complicated. Iowa's yep. a little bit tougher. Um, so, yeah, I think a year ahead of time, well ahead, a year ahead of time, make sure you read through everything like that yep. because – Iowa takes several years of, of applying for points. Yeah, there's Iowa for you know Iowa is an example. There's several other preference point states where you're not going to hunt that state year one, but Ohio and I believe Illinois, Kentucky, the, Kentucky Indiana, all over the counter states, Michigan, Michigan. Yep, yep. So <laughs> no, nobody's coming there. Yeah. No. So so <laughs> we're okay. <laughs> all that takes is reading regulations finding the stats to say, okay, I want to go hunt Iowa. I want to do it with a bow. I want to hunt this part. Look at those stats and then say, all right, I'm going to do it in three years. I'm going to do it in four years or whatever that, that, that magic number is. Anything you'd quickly add on that? Or? Yeah, there's a couple out west states too. If you, if you, if you want to go that route that uh, do require a couple points even to get in general units, so there's plenty that over there that are over the counter as well. But Iowa is, is the one that kind of comes to mind that you do have to plan ahead. If you do your research, there's some zones where you can go more often. Right? Yeah. You um, don't need to wait four or five years. You don't need Iowa. to wait four right. or five years. So, uh, you just can't, you know, there might be, if you look in the record books, there might be less Boone and Crockett deer there, but a lot of that has to do with the habitat. There's less cover there. There's a few less deer, but if you can get on some ground or find some decent public there's ground, there's still great hunting. Yeah. Hey, uh, so this is in reference to your Montana trip. Um, if you're in that camping or truck camping situation for extended days, yep. is scent control an issue or how do you handle that? Yeah, so scent control is an issue and it is a challenge. Um, you know, if, if a perfect situation, you've got a camper or something that has a, a shower or something, because of course you, know, you want to do your best to minimize your odors. In my case, I didn't truck camping. So what I do is, is, is follow everything else I can to the T. So I'm still, all my clothing is stored in a scent free tote outside of the truck or under the truck or somewhere. I'm only getting changed when I'm actually about to go hunting. I'm spraying down with things. I use a couple different ozone-related products to help me out. I use an Ozonics infield generator. Um, I know there's different bags, that you can, like scent crusher bags, or different things like that, where you can use utilize ozone to, to take care of some of that bacteria. Um, so those are some options. I also do kind of like a couple, I don't know, hillbilly shower options, I guess, either with scent-free wipes, just being out there just full wipe down, in front of my truck or I mean just a big old bucket of water over my head twice you know once rinse soap get done and it's not necessarily the most enjoyable shower but um tried to do that a few times wakes you up I I, I uh, had a guy I interviewed for an article and he lived in his truck on public land in Iowa for six weeks I believe he, he, he didn't he, he, he must quit not his be job. married yeah he wasn't married he he quit his day job in like Kansas or I don't know where he was and went to this public land spot and what he would do he would literally wait till big storms and would go out of his truck and just stand in the rain and take showers 
So Dude's maybe I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it, but it's an option. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And just for anyone who didn't hear, her, her, the question was, what do you do in a situation right. where you've got vast amounts of area, like a western state, very different than maybe Midwestern small parcels? Um, and, and so I've experienced some things like that, like in the Montana hunts we've talked about, um, and I've hunted other species out there a lot. And I think you just have to – you can be overwhelmed by the vastness of it. So I right. think, at least in my opinion, I would try to zero in on, a, on, a, on an area that – looks promising either based off of your own intel or talking to people locally talking to biologists in the area talking to a game warden in there and they say hey you know what oh by the way this drainage or this river bottom tends to we tend to see a lot of deer and just get a starting point and then say okay i know that this even though i've got this and this and this and this all these different areas you can really get lost in that right so i would try to pick a core area and then focus your time and learn that zone it down yeah um but to your point tremendous amounts of public land out west that is underutilized in a lot of cases especially from the whitetail front right um unbelievable whitetail opportunities in some of these western states amazing adventure great deer numbers great deer quality the age structure in some of these states is like astounding um and i had the most fun i've ever had in my life out there so hopefully we'll have another good story this year anything else hmm yeah, so in a lot of the low, like the valley type situations out west, you you are going to have cell phone service, but I have found myself in circumstances where I don't. And so because of uh, because of the aforementioned communication issue I had with my wife last year, um, I did get a GPS slash satellite um, device that gives me um, the basic GPS functions. It gives me an SOS function. So if, if things go badly and I fall out of my tree stand or if I'm elk hunting and I break my leg or something, I can hit a button and that calls out to emergency responders. And then there's also a satellite text message option. So even without cell phone service, I can text my wife or someone and say, hey, I'm alive, I'm doing okay, Um, that type of thing. And and that specific device is the Garmin InReach Explorer um, that I just picked up recently. And so far it's been great. Um, I haven't, you know, it's only been half a year, but so far so good. Thank you, Mark. How about one more round of applause for them? Thank you. And that's it. Our first podcast in front of a live audience. And like I said, it was just a really cool experience. Uh, One quick heads up, though. You might have noticed that in this conversation, because we were limited by a strict time block that we had there, we had to keep things pretty high level. Uh, We were not able to dive into a lot of the topics I really would have liked to have covered with Andy. So with that being said, Andy has actually agreed to come on for another episode which I'm pumped about, and we'll be diving much more deeply into all of Andy's tactics and deer hunting philosophies, whether that be on one of these DIY trips or on the properties he's hunting near his home in Michigan or all over the country. He's got a lot more to share. I'm excited to be able to dive into that, and I know you're going to find it very, very interesting. So keep an eye out for that episode in the coming weeks. And with that said, we will wrap things up here with a big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear. 
Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, and most importantly, thank you all for listening. Thanks to those of you who are down in New Orleans and who are actually in the live audience. That was awesome. And I hope you all enjoyed this special episode. Hopefully, we're going to see many more of you at future live events. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.